Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to Hot Take, the podcast where we examine the climate crisis and the climate conversation. I'm Amy Westervelt. And I'm Marianne Hegler. And in this episode, we're going to do things a little bit differently. We won't be discussing and dissecting articles like usual. That's right. If you're anything like us, you've been struggling with this whole corona crisis and trying to wrap your head around it from the confines or comfort of your own home, of course. And we have questions, a lot of them. Yeah, we do. As you can hear the <laughs> sirens in the background over here. Right. So we've decided who better to have on this show to answer those questions than Dr. Samantha Montana, who we've admired for a really long time. She is a bona fide disasterologist and she's smart and she's funny and we can't wait to talk to her. Yep. And if you're on Twitter and you're not following her, you should fix that. Her handle is at Samantha L. Montano, M-O-N-T-A-N-O. And you can thank us later. (laughs) Yeah. And we will link to any articles that she mentions in our show notes or our Twitter, which you can follow at at Real Hot Take. And we know we promised you a show with Eric Holthouse where we talk about how to be a better white guy. And we promise that's still coming soon. But we wanted to do this conversation first just because... We have questions, and this story is moving so fast. Exactly. All right. I'm so ready to talk to Samantha. Yeah, me too. Let's do it. Today's episode is sponsored by Ravensburger Puzzles. I don't think I've ever been so excited about an advertiser in my life because, yes, I am a giant puzzle nerd. And Ravensburger makes the best puzzles, as anyone who loves puzzles will tell you. I live in a place where we actually get pretty frequent power outages. <laughs> and, and when we do, I like to break out a puzzle. It's also a fun way to keep my kids off of their screens and do something sort of calm and meditative together. It's very satisfying when you snap that last piece into place. If you are looking for a calm and mindful exercise, I highly recommend checking out Ravensburger. Regardless of your preferences or skill level, you'll find a jigsaw puzzle that suits you perfectly thanks to the wide range of imagery, themes, and piece counts available. You can start small with a a pretty straightforward puzzle and work your way up to over 40,000 pieces. Are you up for the challenge? Shop Ravensburger on Amazon today. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly... Earth Breeze just makes it so much easier. 
Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Earthbreeze.com slash drilled. Welcome to Hot Take. Thanks for being here. We really appreciate it. We were both actually just talking earlier this morning about how we find your Twitter threads on all kinds of disasters very soothing in a weird way. Yeah. <laughs> Great. I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely one of my favorite follows on the Twitter machine for sure. Yeah, totally, totally. So we wanted you to start by just explaining a little bit about what you do. What is a disasterologist and how did you get into that field? Sure. So I define disasterologists to be anyone who studies disasters. Uh, you know, d- studying disasters, it's a subject that requires the perspective of a lot of different disciplines like geography, sociology, psychology, history, mm-hmm. right? Kind of any discipline you can think of. Um, so I personally do research within the emerging discipline of emergency management, which mm-hmm. is kind of focused on how we create disasters, how we prevent them, how we manage them when they happen. Um, so that's primarily my focus. Um I got into this work um, after I moved to New Orleans, after Hurricane Katrina and the levee failure in 2005. I went down to volunteer and then decided to move there to help with the recovery more long term. And I worked with a whole bunch of different nonprofits in the city that were doing all kinds of recovery work from gutting and rebuilding houses to uh, helping translate and home, uh, you know, help homeowners fill out FEMA paperwork and navigate the whole like complex aid system that had been set up, um, helping with sustainability issues in the city, just all kinds of different things related to the recovery. Um, And then while I was there, the BP oil disaster happened along the coast of Louisiana. Mm. And so we kind of extended our work down there. And I found kind of between these two disasters and then a couple other disasters that I went to during this time throughout the country, that even though these events were happening in very different places in communities that looked really different from one another, that were caused by hazards that were very different from one another, there were commonalities in terms of the ineffectiveness, the inefficiencies, and the injustice of the recoveries that were ongoing. 
And that led me down a path to graduate school where I got my doctorate in emergency management and learned about how research can help make us manage these events better. So we're going to talk today about corona as a disaster, not so much as a disease. But before we get into that, can you explain a little bit about what makes a disaster a disaster? Yeah, so there's a few key terms that you need need to know to understand this. So the first is the word hazard. So a hazard Mm -hmm. is the actual threat. Um, So this would be the actual hurricane, the actual earthquake, the actual tornado, in this case, the actual virus. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it is only when that hazard interacts with us, with society, um, the things that we care about, that Mm -hmm. it has the potential to become a disaster. It has to overwhelm us, overwhelm our capacity to manage it, to respond to it. Um, Mm -hmm. There's different types of disasters. So I say not every disaster is a disaster. There's something... (laughs) This is a little theoretical, but stick with me. There is something called the hazard. <laughs> There's something called the hazard event scale. So on the lower end, you have emergencies. In the middle, you have disasters. And on the high end, you have catastrophes. And mm-hmm. so when a hazard happens, when it interacts with us and causes a problem, it ends up falling somewhere along this scale. And kind of the more overwhelmed that community becomes, the higher up on the scale you go. And the importantly, the reason that this matters is that the way that you manage an emergency is different than the way you manage a disaster, which is different than the way you manage a catastrophe. Um, Mm -hmm. And so when we look at various crises that are unfolding around us, it's useful and prudent to think about where it falls along this scale, because that's going to change the way we respond to it. Mm -hmm. That kind of makes me think that, uh, you know, all these declarations of climate emergency aren't quite strong enough. Should be like a declaration of climate catastrophe. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Yeah. So these words, emergency disasters and catastrophe, we use these terms all the time just in our like everyday language and in different Mm -hmm. contexts, they have different meanings. Um, Mm -hmm. So emergency disaster catastrophe in the way that I use them are like very specifically related to disaster research and emergency management. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the way that the legal system or the way that like the political system uses these terms are different. Like FEMA does Mm -hmm. not define the word disaster the way I define the word disaster based Mm -hmm. on research. Right. So there's a a major terminology issue going on. And then, yes, you're right. As you add the climate situation on top of that, these words get Mm -hmm. kind of gone, go off in even more directions. Yeah. Yeah. Corona definitely qualifies as a disaster at this point, right? Well, (laughs) actually a fourth category, Um, complex humanitarian crises. Um, Mm. These are things like famines, refugee crises. uh, And I have started to argue that what we're dealing with in the United States right now, there's some situational context issues we have to take into consideration here. But I would argue that in the U.S., what we are kind of approaching into is more complex humanitarian territory, more so than a distinct emergency disaster catastrophe. So at its most basic level, what is coronavirus and why is it so dangerous? 
Sure. So again, not a medical doctor from an emergency Uh management perspective here. Coronavirus is dangerous because it is a virus that can make a lot of people sick that uh, can cause high death toll and is a threat to all of us in various ways. Um, And so it's something that we need to manage much more so than something like the seasonal flu that we see regularly. This is something very distinct from that, and that can cause uh, significantly more illness and death. Mm -hmm. So we hear a lot about this concept of flattening the curve. And every time I've looked for it, somebody showed me a chart and I am not a visual learner, so it doesn't really do anything for me. Um, How would you explain the concept of flattening the curve to somebody like me or somebody listening to a podcast who can't look at a chart right now? Right. So it's primarily about the capacity of the healthcare system. That's really what that chart is getting at. So what the goal is, is instead of having a flood of people all come into the hospital at once, we want to stretch that out over the course of many days, weeks, months, if possible, so that we give doctors time to sleep, so that we have time to replenish supplies, uh, so we can buy ourselves time to get more ventilators. If everybody comes into the hospital at once, they won't be able to help everyone, right? They can, there's only so many doctors there to help people. And that is when we start to see those much, much higher death tolls, which is obviously what we want to avoid. So um, mm-hmm. one, mm-hmm. does that help? I can give you another example if it does not. I'll take the other example. That does help, but I'll take the other example in case it helps someone else. Okay, sure. So... Another way, since we're like climate people here, another way to think about this is in terms of a storm. So would you rather have 20 inches of rain fall in a city in the span of 24 hours, or would you rather have 20 inches of rain fall in a city over the course of a month? Mm-hmm. If it's That's super helpful. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You're speaking our language, Sam. <laughs> So, right. So if you get 20 inches of rainfall in 24 hours, you are going to flood, right? You're going to have to go evacuate, do search and rescue. People's houses are going to flood. You're going to have to rebuild roads and stuff. But if that same amount of rainfall happens over the course of a month, yeah, it might be a little swampy outside, but you're not at risk of a disaster, right? right? It's manageable. So, um, yeah, that's, that's super helpful. And also in the same way that we think about Uh, mitigating flooding across the country, you can kind of apply that to like mitigating issues related to the capacity of the healthcare system, right? So again, if you're thinking in terms of this storm, we can do things in our community to increase the capacity of the community to deal with 20 inches of rain in 24 hours. Mm -hmm. If that does happen by building a flood infrastructure system, putting in green space, whatnot. Um, And so you're giving that water a place to go, right? We can do the same thing with the healthcare system in this case too, right? We can bring in extra doctors from other states. We can Mm -hmm. actually get them PPE and ventilators as they need them. We can increase the number of beds, right? So ideally we're doing this combination of both things. We're increasing the capacity of the healthcare system at the same time we're all staying home to try to minimize the number of people who are going to the hospital on any given day. So you're kind of doing both things at once. Okay, I get it. 
So, social distancing. It's been hard. (laughs) (laughs) I have a house that's like sometimes feels too full of people, and Mary has the opposite problem. Yeah. So we (laughs) we have all the spectrum covered. What is social distancing exactly, and why is it an effective and necessary precaution? Sure. So, social distancing also is kind of a misnomer. So, maybe let's start there. It's really physical distancing that we're trying to do. (laughs) Right. Um, They they have just in the past week decided to change the like language and guidance on that, which is probably going to confuse people. But, um, but physical distancing is the is what you're really trying to do here, right? You're trying to physically keep your distance away from other people. And again, the Mm -hmm. reason that you're doing this is one, so you yourself do not get sick, but from like a broader perspective, um, it's again related to that trying to slow the spread, right? To try to um, keep that curve low from the standpoint of the timing of when people are getting sick and ultimately, hopefully minimizing the number of people who get sick. Will you admit that social distancing sucks? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not like an enjoyable <laughs> thing to do. <laughs> I feel like I've just never heard an expert say this sucks. Like, I just want to oh, hear it. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I mean, I am like trapped in the guest room of my parents' house for the past oh, two weeks. No. Yeah. I was in yeah. the middle of moving across the country when this all happened, which is like the worst possible timing. Yeah. And so in an yeah. effort to not get them sick. I've been trapped in a room for two weeks. Like, no, it's not not great. But, but, you know what? uh, You know, we all have to, we we, we have to do this now. Like there's, you know, the consequences of not doing it are far too great in my opinion. And so it's, you know, it's temporary though. This is what we have to do. I I mean, I want to talk more about like the temporariness, but it just feels, it makes me feel so much better to hear you say it sucks. It really does. So I, I I have a a theory. (laughs) I just want to feel seen. Okay. Um, I have a theory that that one of the main reasons people are reluctant to social distancing other than like extreme polarization in our, you know, politics and misinformation from, you know, we'll talk more about that later. Um, But I think it's also because it's often presented that the only thing being done to stop the spread of the virus short of finding a vaccine. Uh, So please tell me that's not true. And what else is being done? Sure. So. There are other things being done. So I think the big thing here, from my understanding of listening to the public health folks on this, is that uh, widespread testing is still a goal, even before Mm -hmm. we get to a vaccine, obviously. So um, Dr. Fauci keeps mentioning this. Um, He's Mm -hmm. talking about how, you know, if you can kind of get a little bit of a pause in the, like, immediate uptick of of this uh, curve that we're in right now, if we can kind of get that to pause for a minute, then you can go and do widespread testing and figure out who is sick, have them stay home, do that tracing that they do to figure out who you've talked to, right? And who else might be sick, get them to stay home. And then anybody who's not sick can kind of go back out and resume daily life. Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. And we can kind of manage things that way. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Again, I will leave that to those experts to figure out. Yeah. But yeah. perhaps that is a bit hopeful for you. That is a bit hopeful. That is a bit hopeful. I know. I keep thinking about like there being like some sort of new class 
distinctions coming out of this. I mean, above and beyond the economic ones of like the people that have like fled had the virus already and are like, you know, um, living the, like out there getting things going again and the people that are still trapped at home. Yeah. I think that is a good point, though. Yeah. We're going to see this staggered mm-hmm. within communities and like across the country. So, I mean, we're in it right now. There, There's only yeah. so many things we can do at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. Have you guys noticed? I just noticed yesterday I went to the grocery store for the first time in like a week and uh, – I feel like people are now uh, like massively avoiding eye contact mm. too. Like every like people are like, I'm don't look at me, don't talk to me. Yeah, stay six feet away. Um, which I'm like, oh great, this is gonna be just real real positive for society. Yeah. not that I'm not suggesting that we don't do it at all by any stretch. Yeah. But, <laughs> but yeah, no, yeah. we're we're gonna um, talk about those long term impacts. I have noticed. Um, I mean, New Yorkers always avoid eye contact, kind of, right? Um, But I've noticed, like, a little bit of a change on both sides. I've seen, like, people being more friendly. Um, Like, they stay away from Mm -hmm. you, but they make a point of making eye contact and smiling at you, which is abnormal for New York. Mm -hmm. Or they've gotten... that's interesting. Or I've seen people get more aggressive. Like, I've seen people just, like yell at people to move out of their way which is also abnormal for new york like you say excuse me because you don't know how crazy the other person is you know so it's a little bit of both but i also have just not been out that much so yeah yeah okay so sam what exactly does quarantine mean uh we're hearing about this 14-day threshold but if that restarts every time you leave the house then does the 14 days become kind of meaningless like what is what is this actually what does this 14 day period actually cover yeah so again my understanding here is that this 14 days is when most people become symptomatic mm-hmm. uh, if mm-hmm. they are sick and so the idea is that if you've been out someplace and you think there is the possibility that you've been exposed then in order to protect other people, you should stay home for 14 days and try to limit any interactions that you have with anybody else. I think we do also need to be reasonable here. Like people do need to go to the store to get food and whatnot, but um, to do the best you can at staying home to your question, like, yes, if you like leave your home during that 14 day time period, you need to start again. Yes, to the extent that you think when you went out of the house, you had some kind of interaction with somebody else who possibly was sick. This is really hard to kind of figure out because people who are asymptomatic can spread the virus. So it's not just if you've like come into contact with somebody who's like coughing, right? Um, So I think like the responsible thing to do would be to start that clock again. I know I personally have, I personally did that. I've technically been isolating from others for three weeks because I mm-hmm. one week into it I had to leave the house but anyways so, mm-hmm. so you know these are estimates for some people it's kind of less for some people more it's going to keep changing um you know as as things progress yeah yeah so when did you uh first become alarmed by coronavirus as a disaster expert sure Well, let me start by saying I have a pretty high bar for what I consider to be a crisis worthy of being alarmed Mm -hmm. about. Um, So Mm -hmm. for others, this may Which is why I love following you. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) So 
So uh, another thing to point out here is that traditionally public health has been kind of the lead agency for public health emergencies, not emergency management. We kind of act as a supporting or like as a support system to public health when there's a public health emergency. And so kind of personally, I've made the choice to focus on these other hazards and leave the public health emergencies to the super smart public health people to deal with. Um, Mm. And we've kind of crossed a a line here where emergency management is much more involved than traditionally we may have been. Um, So the point there is that I think my realization possibly lagged behind anybody that you kind of talked to in public health about this, but um, Mm -hmm. my timeline starts about mid January. I had been pretty offline over the holidays and hadn't been watching much news, but um, when the first case was announced in Washington state, I kind of started paying attention. You could say my disasterologist senses kind of started tingling like, Ooh, this might be a problem. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That was also around the time my students started asking me questions in class about coronavirus. And I was still Mm. kind of, Oh, it's public health. Well, just let them go talk to them. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Then by the end of January, I remember sitting in my office on campus and I watched the world health organization declare a public health emergency And that was when I started talking more regularly with some of my colleagues and friends who do public health work. And pretty consistently, they were saying, yeah, you know, we'll probably have some spread in the United States, but we should be able to keep it under control fairly well. So I still wasn't too worried. Um, And then I, you know, there's also a difference between an ongoing crisis that is being managed and an ongoing crisis that is not being managed. And for me at that time, I still felt like we were, yeah, there's a crisis unfolding here, but it's still for the most part being managed. So I lived in Omaha, Nebraska at this time. And there were um, kind of the first week of February, there were about 60 Americans who had been evacuated from Wuhan, China, that came to Omaha to be housed in quarantine at Camp Ashland, just outside the city. And I like, I remember the night the plane landed, there were all these sirens going through the city as they were being transferred, you know. Um, Then like, I think it was the following week, um, they brought a number of Americans who had tested positive for COVID on one of the cruise ships to UNMC in Omaha, which is Uh, They have a biocontainment unit there, a bunch of really brilliant people work there. And I remember thinking like, oh, this is what UNMC has trained for. This is what these systems are for. This is why we've invested in this in, uh, you know, in Omaha and Nebraska. And so even though I was worried about the possibility of more widespread cases, uh, when I literally looked out my window, I saw that, you know, there was this response happening. So it still seemed pretty managed. Uh, So for me, the real change came on March 1st. I know the exact date because I went back to find it on Instagram when I posted about it. (laughs) I was like, full on alarm bells, March 1st. Uh, There was an article, I think it was in the Washington Post, that said uh, they believed there had been six weeks of community spread that had gone undetected in Washington State. And that was really the first time that I became aware of there being issues with testing. I I think, I don't know if everyone knew that at the time or if I just hadn't been paying attention to that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, basically all of a sudden I had assumed people were being tested. And all of a sudden when I found out that had not been happening, 
everything changed, right? And, you know, there, there are two very different timelines there, right? There's the timeline where you're testing everybody from the start and things are being managed. And then there's the timeline we went down where, you know, none of that is happening. So, yeah, yeah ever since March 1st, uh, <laughs> full on alarm. March 1st yeah. feels like eons ago. Yeah, it really does. I know. Like, I can't even remember that world anymore. Hey, y'all, it's Mary. I wanted to tell you about a new organization that I've gotten involved with called Masks for America. As you're well aware, there is a major shortage of masks for doctors, nurses, and frontline medical workers in the United States and Puerto Rico. And so Masks for America has found a way to partner with an FDA-certified manufacturer that sells uh, just the type of mask that they need for only $2 masks, which is a fraction of what hospitals and governments have been paying for these masks. So every dollar donated goes directly to mailing the masks to the healthcare facilities. And every person involved is volunteering their time, including me. And for only $2, you can provide a safe mask to a frontline healthcare worker. So if you can, please donate. You can go to maskforamerica.org. That's mass plural, and four is in the number four, maskforamerica.org. Your donation will go to a great place. Okay, so one of our uh, favorite questions. One of Amy's anger. favorite I'm questions. I'm just kidding. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. It's my favorite emotion. What makes you angry about this pandemic and how it's been handled? Well, besides Jared back. Kushner. Oh, my God. Um, I am angriest about the fact that this did not need to happen, right? There did not need to be this many lives that were lost and will be lost. There did not need to be so much economic turmoil. There did not need to be so much pain and confusion. There did not need to be all of this miscommunication. There did not need to be this uncoordinated, improvised response. We, mm-hmm. you know, we, <laughs> we spent a lot of time in emergency management preparing for disasters, for various crises to unfold. We've spent all this time creating these systems so we can respond to any hazard that happens, whether it's a virus or a hurricane or an earthquake or something else. And, um, and by and large, those systems that we have in place are not being used or not being used adequately or not being used Mm. in the right ways. And it is creating just this tidal wave of impacts across the country in like various ways, everything from the actual numbers that we're seeing in terms of who's affected, death tolls economically, the like rippling, rippling mental health repercussions of all of this for people across the country. And it just, it wasn't necessary. This did not need to happen if different decisions, you know, it's always easier to say this in retrospect, of course, but I think that it's pretty clear here that there were several points in time in which if a different decision had been made by various agencies, by the White House, by the president, that we would be in a much different position than we Mm -hmm. currently are. And that Mm -hmm. is just, it's infuriating. Yeah. It's looking back at some of the, like, you know, the timeline of the response, it kind of looks like, did they fuck it up on purpose? It just, it seems so deliberate almost. Yeah, you know, something 
that I think is important also for people to remember is that this administration has mishandled nearly every single crisis that has occurred yeah. in the past three yeah. years. And yeah. Maria is, of course, the obvious and most extreme example here. But yeah. I mean, he, you know, was saying good luck to Texas the day before Harvey made landfall. Like it, we're not, you know, yeah, not doing this is on brand. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on so, brand. It is, uh, it has been always difficult for me in the past three years to break apart what is intentional, what is done out of malice, what is done out of ignorance, what is done out of just not understanding how emergency management works and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and what is done out of outside interest pressuring. It's hard to break this apart, which is why yeah. we need to have an investigation after uh, this pandemic mm-hmm. ends, we also need to retroactively go back and investigate what happened in specifically related to the federal response during Hurricane Maria to yeah. identify what happened, right? We also, you know, as we think about wanting to prevent a situation like this again in the future, it is really, really important that we distinguish between what went wrong in our systems and what went wrong because somebody didn't understand those systems or Mm -hmm. ignored those systems Uh or didn't operate within those systems, right? Those are two very, very, very different questions when we get to this question of how do we fix this so this doesn't happen again. Yep. Yeah. One of the things I really appreciate um, from following you on Twitter is that you're very quick to correct people when they're like, coronavirus is Donald Trump's Hurricane Katrina moment. You're like, nope, he already had that. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually had several. Yes. <laughs> um, and because Maria just kind of gets written out of history and it's just so incredibly unbelievable. So, Sam, when and how do you think this can get better? Well, I think I said this earlier, but I can't really give you a date on the calendar. There are a of lot course. of variables <laughs> happening here. Yeah. Um, one thing I will say, though, is, and this is maybe a hopeful thing, is that small decisions that are made by people can make a huge change in the course of any response, right? And they aren't necessarily decisions that we can foresee, right? I mean, it can be small, Um like one state makes a decision that ends up kind of changing the course, right? And so um, we, we kind of just need to wait and see. I'd also, though, kind of offer a slight word of caution here about what we even mean by better. We're mm-hmm. still very, very much at the beginning of this response in a way that I'm not fully sure the public is realizing. We still have mm-hmm. weeks, and I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we know it's months mm-hmm. of doing this, right? And so we don't even know what all of the rippling impacts yet are, right? In the same way that small decisions can make a response go better, small decisions or big decisions can make a response go worse, right? And so we are still in a place where people are still losing their jobs every day. We don't know yet what the actual capacity of the healthcare and emergency management systems are across this country and how that is actually going to manifest in each community. And then on top of that, um, even once we get through response, even once, you know, we're secure, there's a vaccine, right? We still have the recovery to go through. And that's something that almost no one has discussed or is even kind of thinking about, because obviously we're so focused on the immediate life-saving tasks that need to happen. But we're 
talking about years and years of recovery to the extent that people do recover. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so it it's a long, long way to go. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, if it helps, like, yes, there will be a day when you're able to leave your house. And also, as a country, we will get through this, right? We are going yeah. to lose a lot of people along the way we already have. I'm not okay with that. I hope one else is okay with that. But at the same time, you know, kind of we're in the middle of this. What's done is done. And we need to focus on how we can get ourselves through this with the fewest mm-hmm. number of deaths, with the fewest number of impacts the least amount of damage as possible. Right. That kind of leads right into this this next question, which is, um, what are your concerns about the long-term effects of this pandemic on society and culture? I think a lot has been um, focused on the economic impacts. And of course, those will impact everyone for a long time too. But, um, but kind of curious just about how you think this will change people from, I guess, like a, I mean, I, I don't, I know you're not a um, social psychologist, but, um, but, you know, just, you know, kind of the way that people interact with each other and the way that we sort of live our lives. Yeah, well, I think there's a couple of things here. So one, I definitely think there are going to be some pretty significant long term mental and emotional impacts from this mm-hmm. pandemic. I think you were already seeing it. And I, I think we'll also see those numbers among certain populations too, right? So among people who have actually lost somebody to COVID, uh, to somebody who's lost their jobs, who are really struggling financially, who are in an abusive household and are kind of trapped Mm -hmm. right now. Um, So I definitely, those numbers are going to be high. Um, So that's one huge concern. In terms of like any kind of lasting cultural impact though, I could be totally wrong about this, but uh, I suspect, Back kind of 20 years from now, as we look back on this, it'll kind of register similarly to how we look back on 9-11. Like it was this moment of national crisis where there was um, almost a unity in that crisis. Um, but I don't know that it will like impact every single thing that we do day to day 20 years from now, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, you know, it's been interesting. Like, I've been seeing all these people say, oh, like, now's the time for America to decide what its values are. And I'm like, are you like, are you fucking kidding me right now? America clearly decided to, like, be an asshole a long time ago. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I don't I don't want to make that decision while Donald Trump is president. Like, <laughs> I really don't. You know, I'll also say, though, that that happens after or that happens during every disaster people say things like that so some of the yeah uh how can I say this nicely so sometimes (laughs) when you're in the middle of a disaster (laughs) people um get a little uh excited about how (laughs) this could change the world right and everything's going to change because of this disaster and in reality we see that most often after a disaster uh things kind of go back to normal eventually some semblance of normal um and that there isn't maybe as much change as we like to think that there will be right right one thing though i will say in terms of that which i am very concerned about outside of the economic recovery is um is being pretty wary of policy grabs here. Um, oh yeah, having yeah. impact on the country, right? I mean, we've already mm-hmm. kind of started to see this to some extent, but especially for emergency management policy, uh, if we want to make that 
they're not a perfect comparison by any means, but if you want to kind of compare the 2001 to now uh, mindsets, after 9-11, the emergency management system got turned upside on its head. Everything was reoriented towards Homeland Security. FEMA got thrown into the Department of Homeland Security. It just like upended everything. And it laid groundwork for a large part of the federal response to Katrina a few years Mm -hmm. later. And Mm -hmm. that is something that I'm especially very concerned about as we see calls for policy change related to public health and pandemics to see what the jolt and the backlash is there for emergency management. Because of course, we don't just want reactive policy changes to one hazard. We want comprehensive policy change that makes all of emergency management more effective and efficient and just for any type of hazard. So uh, that could ultimately have some kind of longer lasting impact that is yet unforeseen. Yeah, I know. I mean, on the policy front in general, I just feel like there's there's just this weird thing happening where um, if you suggest that perhaps in this moment where we're passing massive packages and whatever, like, you know, long-term thinking and reform could be part of that, then you're being, like, um, self-interested or... <laughs> Or, or like distracting from the cause at hand or whatever. But it's like there's stuff happening right now that we're going to be stuck with for a long time after this pandemic. And I, I, it's so far not looking that great. Right. And it's also the fossil fuel guys never waste a disaster. Oh, no. They were on this day yeah. one. They didn't even take it one day off. They were just they were no. on it. They had their list ready to go. Um, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So Sam, you've you've talked on Twitter um, in a thread that we're going to link to in the show notes about the importance of connecting climate and Corona, and you talked about your experience um, learning how to make those connections in Katrina, uh, post-Katrina New Orleans. Um, can we get you to talk a little bit more about that experience and why it's so important to make the connections today? Sure. So I'm going to try. This is a long story, and I'm going to try it as try to tell it as succinctly as possible. But <laughs> we're not going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> 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 All right, well, sit back. Um, so, <laughs> so I was very fortunate to grow up in a household and in a state that was concerned with environmentalism. I grew up in Maine, so very, very into mm-hmm. the environment here. And a piece of that environmentalism was related to climate change. I remember um, I first learned about climate change in my, like, seventh grade science class, which as I've grown older, I realized is not most people's experiences, especially going back to the 1990s. Mm. So to the extent uh, that I learned about the environment, I was like, yes, I'm an environmentalist. I care about these issues. I want to work to address them. Um, But then I moved to New Orleans after Katrina and... My perception of kind of the immediate needs in the city were related to issues like housing, access to public transportation, access to healthcare, access to education, and all of the disparities in that access that fell along the lines of race, gender, class, and their intersections. And so while none of those issues were new to the city of New Orleans or to New Orleanians, the scale of need and the lack of capacity among organizations and systems to address those needs was unprecedented. And it was all just contextualized within this post-Katrina atmosphere, which was just 
totally unlike anything I had ever experienced before. Um, And so as I was there working with these various nonprofits, it just seemed like there were these more pressing needs that needed to be addressed in the city and that any kind of environmentalism was going to have to take a back seat. Um, Mm. And so I mentioned earlier that I had worked with a few local environmental groups in New Orleans after Katrina, and they were primarily doing like sustainability work. So things like putting solar panels on roof, installing energy efficient light bulbs in people's houses, building Mm -hmm. vegetable gardens in people's backyards. And like, (laughs) sure, those are good things to to do, right? But at the time, it was just really difficult for me to justify having to go convince a homeowner that they should put solar panels on their right. They didn't even have a house that had been rebuilt yet. Right, right. And so it all just seemed kind of very void of the reality of people's lived experiences. However, I still worked with those groups because I kind of saw this dual benefit to what they were doing, right? So putting solar panels on somebody's house and, you know, giving them energy efficient light bulbs could also be a way of lowering their energy bills, as opposed to just this benefit from the environment. And so um, (laughs) the problem is there that, uh, you know, the, in all the time that it takes you to build a garden in someone's backyard, or, uh, you know, to, to build this vegetable garden in somebody's backyard, you could have gone out and advocated for a grocery store to be built in their neighborhood. And yeah, that garden is nice, but it's not a solution to this community-wide problem. And these like very, uh, like it, it wasn't addressing this radical systemic change that was needed throughout the city. It was just putting band-aids on these situations. And it was almost to me, it felt like this like questionable use of time and effort and resources going into these smaller projects as opposed to these larger systemic problems. You'll note that this is like a common conversation within climate activism, you know, the individual efforts versus broader systemic change, right? This is right. Obvious. Um, So, and then specifically related to climate change, to my memory, even though environmental groups that I was working with were spending relatively little time talking about climate change, even talking about the complexities of the environmental crisis in Louisiana. And again, this is not to say that there was no one in New Orleans or in Louisiana doing this work. Of course they were, but it wasn't in the groups that I was working in. Um, and, And so it was just kind of out of my frame of reference for the first few years that I was in New Orleans doing this recovery work. Um, And so, um, you know, it was, I think even in retrospect, it's difficult for me to kind of break apart, um, you know, whether we weren't talking about those things just because it was 10 years ago. And, you know, it's kind of, Mary makes this point all the time, but it's kind of hard to remember how, different the climate conversation was 10 years ago um Mm. or if it had to do with um the priority that really was being given to disaster recovery in the city if it was those immediacy of other needs in the city if it was that it was a red state in the south right (laughs) there's like all of these factors that i think were contributing there Obviously, in retrospect, I was completely wrong. We were completely wrong about how we were approaching this subject, right? I, you know, in these years, went off, taught myself about environmental justice and the ways in which capitalism, racism are at the heart of disasters in the climate crisis. 
um, mm-hmm. and learned about how environmentalism and climate change are not separate issues from things like transportation, housing, education, and healthcare, and mm-hmm. um, and kind of like brought all of these different issues together. And so for me, that really happened during the BP oil disaster along the coast because that incident kind of more than any other in my opinion brought together these connections between environmentalism the climate crisis the city of new orleans coastal louisiana and disasters past present and future they all just collided at once and i don't think that anybody can drive down highway one in louisiana which is the road you take to get down to the coast to grand isle and not say oh shit, (laughs) like the climate crisis is here. This is not the future. This is now, full stop. And so for me, as I moved into emergency management work, I was kind of, this is in like the years following BP, I was concerned to see that there was very little conversation about climate change within emergency management. And that again, harder to think back to this time now, but that there was relatively minimal conversations about climate change within the broader disaster research. And Uh now I I hope it's obvious to everybody this like clear, clear connection between many of the disasters we've experienced in the past few years and the climate crisis, and especially how those disasters will change moving into the future. And for the lesson is that there is always a disaster happening at some point in time. And if you wait for there not to be a disaster to happen, to talk about climate change, you will never talk about climate change. And we have to do both when we, Uh you know, going back 20, 30 years when scientists were warning about the climate crisis and saying, you need to take action now or everything will get worse, right? Everything you're trying to do will become more difficult. We're at that point now. We have to walk and chew gum at the same time. We have to address the impacts of the climate crisis that are happening now. We have to adapt ourselves to future consequences that will happen at the exact same time that we're actually mitigating climate change. And we don't have this luxury of getting to hit pause every time there's a disaster we we can't we'll never get any work done yeah and i know that that is a hard ask like i i get it and like on an individual Mm -hmm. level yes you need to take breaks and and don't burn out etc etc yes but as a movement yes of course you can't stop every time there's a disaster yeah for sure um, yeah, Amy has a lot of experience with that whole, like, you can't relate climate to wildfires sort of thing from some of her reporting before. And yeah, it's been an uphill battle. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. Even recently, too, I feel like people sometimes think, and even other reporters will sometimes say, like, talk about this, like it's an, like um, something that happened in the distant past, you know, but like I had a an editor at like a extremely well-known national publication that I will leave unnamed <laughs> like two <laughs> like two years ago tell me to take references to climate change out of a wildfire story because it would quote unquote politicize it so like you know it's it's still a big problem. I don't know. Sure. Yeah. And also, let me just, well, if it helps, let me just form everyone. Disasters are political. You are not politicizing yeah. a disaster by mentioning climate change. Mm-hmm. 
fact, you are doing your job and reporting on all of the elements that contributed to causing that disaster. Exactly. Do they want you to not talk about development decisions that were made to put those houses there? No, no one's being told to take that out of their articles. Exactly. So, yeah. Journalists aren't the ones that are politicizing it. The editors who tell you to take it out, the whoever on Twitter who's mad about it, they're the ones who are creating the problem here. It's not yeah, exactly that are accurately covering it. Exactly. It's politicization by omission. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's not only to that point, it's also not just climate denialism to do that. It's also disaster denialism to do that. Mm. That's an interesting concept. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. So about the like connection connecting of climate and corona you know i think people are a little bit remiss to make that connection because corona is not caused by climate change at least so far as i understand but they they it does make sense to talk about them in conversation with each other right yes of course so there's two kind of primary connections that i see here uh, that are like high level connections so the first to your point yes of course climate change has not caused coronavirus mm -hmm. um, in the same way though that climate change does not cause a hurricane right um, there are connections to how climate change affects the characteristics of a hurricane right that can lead to a disaster um, coronavirus is slightly different than that comparison there um, in that it as far again as far as i understand and that like science here is it's like pretty unrelated to climate change however the way that it is related to climate change is that the climate crisis is unfolding around us everything that happens is related to the climate crisis we are operating in a world that is changed because of the climate crisis we are coming off of three, four years of significant disasters across this country. You have all of the flooding in 2016 in Texas, South Carolina, Hurricane Matthew, Louisiana had multiple floods. You go into 2017, you have Harvey, Irma, Maria, the California wildfires. You go into 2018, you have Florence, Michael. Uh, you go into 2019, you have the uh, Midwestern thing. You have Dorian. Apologies to any disaster yeah. I left out. And right. you <laughs> yeah. have, over have overwhelmed the emergency management system in this country. There have been reports done since the 2017 season that have talked about how FEMA specifically was under-resourced, understaffed, didn't have the capacity to meet all of these needs, right? The system itself has not had a time or not had an opportunity to recover from all of these other disasters that happen. And so you add a pandemic on top of that. And this system right. that has already been strained for an extended period of time is now having to try and meet the needs related to this crisis, right? And and then I'll also, I've been pointing this out daily online, that any other disaster that happens during this time, many of which could be related to climate change, will only compound all of these impacts and make everything worse. We have this right. tendency to think about disasters as these unique events that are completely separate from one another, right. like separate moments in time from everyday life. And that's absurd that it that's not how disasters work they all lead into one another they're all connected the yeah. way the strength of your community 
on any given day, when that hazard comes along, is going to help determine what those impacts are, how you're able to meet the needs in your community, et cetera, et cetera. And so to say that coronavirus has no place in a climate conversation is ridiculous, right? Even as we Mm -hmm. move forward in time and we see this increased risk across the world because of climate change and these other factors, there will be another public health emergency that happens, right? Of course, like this is not some kind of issue that will just all of a sudden go away on its own. Mm -hmm. The other Mm -hmm. way that, um, that climate and Corona are the, I've like seen these two being talked about is this comparison between climate change and coronavirus and like saying we can learn things about our approach to climate activism from coronavirus. It's like kind of that mm-hmm. argument that's out there. Mm-hmm. I yeah. see where people are going with this. However, I would just offer like a slight word of caution there. To me, the comparison isn't climate change and COVID. The comparison is COVID and the consequences of climate change. I think the issues that we're seeing in terms of our inability to manage this pandemic are instructive to our inabilities to not manage the consequences of climate change, right? The lesson that we have not invested in our public health and emergency management systems for COVID is also true in the sense that we have not invested in those systems for the consequences of climate change that, again, we are already starting to experience across the country. So I think when we're making that comparison, that's, that's where that comparison is. And I would just like to say that emergency management policy reform would cross these two issues and address like these multiple strains of challenges that we're seeing in terms of not only this pandemic, but the future or current and future consequences of climate change. Yeah. Amy and I were joking online about like, you know, it's, it's kind of like people think that COVID and climate are in conversation with each other and being like, no, you go first. No, as for you, I insist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, they're, they're definitely not. <laughs> I know. I know. It's, uh, yeah. I don't know. It's weird. It's weird. Yeah. Okay, so Samantha, where can people find reliable information about the disaster? What, like, where do you go for information on on what's happening right now? Yeah, because we go to your Twitter feed. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I follow emergency managers all across the country. I follow public health experts all across the country. Um, I follow local news outlets. Right. I, I have a lot of information coming in from a lot of different sources. I don't think that's like a reasonable thing for the average person to do. Um, so my recommendation is that you follow your local public health and your local emergency management agencies online. You can sign up for alerts, follow them on social media. I think that's actually a really important place to be getting your information because even though this is a global pandemic, the way risk and impacts are manifesting is actually quite local. Um, Mm -hmm. And so even if you are in uh, Arizona looking at what's happening in New York City, you know, that's not necessarily going to be applicable to you. So I think kind of trying to focus in on any kind of little experts you can find is the best approach. I will say that obviously mm-hmm. there are some states and places where certain politicians in particular have not been great about uh, giving out accurate and timely information. And so yeah. if you feel like you are in one of those states, I would encourage you to maybe 
pick the next closest state where you feel like experts have a handle on things and kind of follow what's happening there and try to apply it to your situation as best as possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's some of the most dangerous misinformation floating out there around Corona? Well, I think really any kind of denial about coronavirus and its effects is what is most dangerous at this point. I think kind of at this most fundamental level, you have to know and understand that there's a disaster happening to be able to manage it. And, um, you know, oftentimes during a disaster, we spend a lot of time being concerned about rumors on the internet about like fake cures or whatever. And yeah, sure, those are dangerous. And we got to address them. But I also kind of would encourage people to think about the scale of this situation. Um, You know, I don't know that the problem here is like your mom's friend sharing a weird article on Facebook as much (laughs) as the problem is the rampant misinformation, lies and denial coming from people in positions of authority, right? Right. When the president or the White House or, you know, a governor dismisses or denies the reality of the crisis, they're putting lives at stake. And I think it's wrong to think that large swaths of the public are not listening to what those authority figures say. Um, And, you know, there's deadly and rippling repercussions across the country to a scale that I don't think is going to come about from some weird article on Facebook, right? So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, for me, I don't know, it's when they demonstrate that they don't understand how to manage this crisis, when they hesitate or show uncertainty in their response, when they are not throwing every available resource at this crisis, that I become most concerned, um, because that changes the way that we as a country respond. And state and local government can only do so much, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we've seen a number of governors kind of do everything they can, but we also do need the federal government to step up and coordinate this. Every state does, and every state and territory doesn't have their own resources to deal with this, right? We need this coordination of an effective national response, which as of now has not happened. And I just, I don't think it can get any more dangerous than that. I love that, that like, yes, the uh, misinformation coming from people in power is more important than like your mom's Facebook <laughs> Yeah, sure. I mean, like, also, like, check your mom's Facebook and, like, make yes. sure. She's not <laughs> <That's true>. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, moms yeah. are great, but I'm slightly yeah. more concerned with the president right now. Yeah, yeah. How do you think the media is doing with this story? Are there um, kind of problematic narratives that you're seeing, you know, pop up in, in multiple places? And what do you think constitutes a red flag in a, a media story about the coronavirus? Yeah, I, I almost think that the biggest problem here, which is not a usual problem that we have in disasters, is that there is so much media coverage that no one can read it all right. and mm-hmm. no one can keep up with it. I mean, I, you know, look, I do this all the time, right? Anytime there's a disaster unfolding in the US, I'm like following what's happening and synthesizing all of the information that's coming out about it, all of those news stories, trying to kind of, you know, make sense and analyze what's happening. And so I'm very used to doing this and like, I am drowning over here. <laughs> there, yeah. There's so many. That's good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. No, like, I, I, 
hopefully I keep saying this, but like if you are confused and not able to keep up with what is happening, you are not alone. Again, that's like another reason that you might want to kind of focus more on your local journalists uh, Mm, and kind of following what they're saying as well. It kind of just kind of tunes out some of the noise. And that's not the reason I say that's weird is because usually we have the opposite problem. Usually I'm complaining about there not being enough media coverage of a disaster. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we have just a a little disoriented there in terms of this opposite problem. And I don't necessarily at all mean that as a critique of journalists or the media, like of course they should be covering this. Mm -hmm. And they're also right in the sense that coronavirus affects every single part of life. And so you do need to see different perspectives and, uh, you know, to have the political perspective, to have an uh, economic perspective, to right, to have these different journalists kind of coming at it from these different angles. <clears throat> but um, it does make it, I think, impossible to follow what is happening. Um, so, right. That, that I think is the kind of overarching problem. Um, of course, any kind of media coverage that is inaccurate or is perpetuating misinformation in any way is a problem, full stop. Um, I would say, and this is kind of funny considering what I just said, but there are also elements of what is happening that I think are going uncovered or undercovered. Um, so I think we've started to see some shifts in the past couple of days, I think as journalists kind of get on their feet here to even kind of figure out how to cover this. Right. Um, but I, I do think that there has still been a pretty consistent under reporting related to particularly vulnerable populations and um, kind of what their immediate needs are. I think there's been a lack of coverage about thinking kind of in the long term, again, kind of going into the recovery from this and starting to really think about that. Um, I think there has been, from an emergency management perspective, uh, part of this, I think, is just tied to confusion about what exactly emergency management agencies are doing and kind of like how things are unfolding. But kind of uh, there's still been a, a lack of coverage about kind of the failures related to emergency management for various reasons. Um, that that's kind of gone uncovered. So there's, even though we have all of this reporting, there's still, um, there's still a lot that I think we're kind of leaving out here. And as we, again, we're still at the beginning of this response, but as we move forward there, and this happens in every disaster, there is like a narrative that is built and formed related to the cause and consequences of the disaster, right? Like a, there's like a, a narrative that forms about what happened. And I hope that we are really, really careful as we move forward about what that narrative is, because I see a path forward where we kind of remove responsibility from certain people. And um, we cannot do that if we want there to be any kind of change at the end of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, sounds a lot like climate, I think, <laughs> you know, like naming who the fossil fuel villains are and all of that. Yeah. Sam, are there any articles or reading that you recommend for people who want to understand this from an emergency management standpoint or from just like the global pandemic standpoint? Yeah. Um, well, the New York Times has had a couple of articles in the past few days specifically about 
uh, FEMA, which I think is maybe like the easiest way to wrap your mind around emergency management. Obviously, emergency management is much more than FEMA. But so there's a mm-hmm. few New York Times articles out there um, that you can look into. Um, other than that, I've been compiling a weekly list of more emergency management oriented articles that I found for my students, but I've also been posting them on my blog for anybody who wants to read them. Um, So that Mm -hmm. can also be a resource uh, if you're interested. (laughs) Again, kind of like focus on like one or two national media outlets and then focus more locally, I think is is the best approach here. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to answer so many of our questions. <laughs> You're welcome. Seriously. I, I feel better. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Okay. I feel a little better now. Yeah, me too. Or at least uh, better informed. Yeah. And you know, knowledge is comfort in these confusing times. Yeah, feeling really glad about my decision to stock up on booze. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, me too. I got a lot of wine over here. (laughs) a girl. All right. Look for any articles we mentioned here in the show notes and in our Twitter at Real Hot Take. Yep. And make sure that you're following us on Twitter. You can find me at at Mary Hegler and you can find Amy at at Amy Westerfeld. And big thank you to Samantha for joining us on this episode. You can and should follow her on Twitter at Samantha L. Montano. That's actually where we both found her, right? Exactly. Yeah, she's um, awesome. And very glad that I did. Um, she is the voice of reason when I'm like freaking out in the middle of the night or saw some headline that scared me half to death. I'm, mm-hmm. I always go to her Twitter feed yep, and it's like, totally. what is Samantha saying about this? Yes, totally. Yes. <laughs> yes. But yeah, in all, in all seriousness, we really hope that y'all are taking care of yourselves and quarantine and being kind and patient with yourselves because this is not easy at all. Nope, it's really not. We really hope this episode helped y'all as much as it helped us. And we'll be back with you very soon with a little Eric Holt house. Exactly. All right. Take care of yourselves and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Hot Take is produced and distributed by Critical Frequency. The show is reported and written by Mary Hegler and me, Amy Westerveld. Our mixer is Tyler Morissette. You can find Hot Take wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at The Real Hot Take and leave us a reading or review wherever you're getting the show. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>